Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike sits down with Bonnie Lin, Senior Fellow for Asian Security and the new director of the China Power Project at CSIS, to talk about one of the hottest topics on the chessboard, the Taiwan Strait. Bonnie and Mike assess if China and Taiwan are truly on the brink of war, dive into China's overall strategy towards Taiwan, and discuss what U.S. commitment to Taiwan security means for allies and partners in the region. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm delighted to have with us Dr. Bonnie Lin, who is not only joining us on the Asia Chessboard, but has joined CSIS as our new senior fellow for Asian security and the director of the China Power Project, which Bonnie Glazer started. She's moved on to the German Marshall Fund, where you can follow her work. And Bonnie's picking up and moving in some new directions, uh, that project to measure Chinese power and its impact and work on security issues as they touch on uh, greater China, if you will, including, importantly, the Taiwan Strait, South China Sea, and so forth. So, Bonnie, welcome to CSIS and welcome to the Asia Chessboard. We uh, we always start asking how you got here. And so, how did you get interested in Asian security? What, what, what were the key milestones along the way? Thank you very much, Mike. It's really great to be here and to have join CSIS this month. So my path towards working on China and Taiwan foreign policy issues is, was not necessarily a straightforward one. I started off in undergraduate thinking that I actually wanted to become a medical doctor because I wanted to contribute to something good, positive, and maybe help save some lives. However, as I took more courses in undergrad, I became more interested in how governments function, particularly how much an impact a change in a single government policy could have on its citizens. At that time, I was most interested in the social economic benefits governments could provide. So I was much more interested on, for example, analyzing the welfare state and what what governments could provide to its citizens directly. Somewhere between undergraduate and graduate school, my switch focused to U.S.-China relations, and I was most interested in understanding how the two countries could, if possible, work together. And if cooperation was not possible, I was most interested in understanding how the two countries could find ways to avoid war. I think part of what drove my switch to foreign policy were the discussions that were occurring at that time when I was in college about the Iraq War in 2003 and the implications of use of military force. I also remember back then that Taiwan President Chen Shui-bian's referendum in 2004 and all the discussions about future cross-strait relations and how the building back and forth between China and Taiwan had the raised potential of a China-Taiwan conflict in which the United States could be involved. So given my interest in U.S.-China relations, I then took a somewhat unconventional path in terms of focusing on China. I focused on China for my master's degree, but I did not focus on it for my PhD dissertation. My master's advisor at that time, uh, Professor Kenneth Lieberthal at the University of Michigan, had advised me that there are many experts to, who understand China, uh, but not all of these experts who understand China actually understand U.S. foreign policy. So he recommended I try to combine both for my research. So as a result, my dissertation was more broadly focused on U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War. So I was incredibly fortunate um, to be able to continue to go back to working on China after I graduated from my PhD. You're not the first social scientist working on international security who thought at one point there were going to be a, 
uh, a doctor and go to med school and then encountered anatomy and advanced biology courses um, and also got inspired by theories of impact and change in international relations. Your PhD was not on China specifically, though, right? No, it was not. It was more broadly on U.S. nonproliferation uh, policy. And you did that at Yale? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. And so how did you end up at, did you go right to RAND from there? I did. Yeah. So even though I didn't focus on China as my dissertation, I was still doing some work related to China on the side for different courses in my studies. And um, I went to RAND right afterwards and because they saw that I could combine the analysis on China as well as an analysis on broader nuclear security issues, as well as um, general foreign policy. And And a lot of your work at RAND focused on Taiwan Straits and security hotspots, right? Yep. It focused on Taiwan, it focused on South China Sea, East China Sea, generally on Chinese foreign policy and the range of issues that China dealt with in its neighborhood. So let's go right to the the topic that's at the center of everyone's thinking right now on U.S.-China relations mm-hmm. in terms of hotspots. I mean, people talk about the South mm-hmm. China Sea, but the one that is in some ways you know, closer to being existential for both China and perhaps the U.S. is the Taiwan Strait. And we've had a variety of sort of uh, unprecedented statements by Indo-PACOM commanders, U.S. officials, suggesting we're, you know, potentially on the brink of war. No, we're not. We can handle it. Where do you put the danger meter on cross-straits tension right now? Are we on the brink of war? So I think that's a super important question. I, I personally don't think that we are that close to the brink of war, but I can understand how some uh, would perceive that given the dynamics there. So what is happening is that China is continuing to increase coercion against Taiwan. China has increased a number of incursions in Taiwan's airspace. China is also increasing its military activities near or around Taiwan. At the same time, right, the Chinese media is also increasing its disinformation and psychological warfare against Taiwan, which includes sounding the drum bells that which folks have been picking up on. And also warning that China could use military force against Taiwan. Chinese experts also portray the PLA as being strong and capable of defeating Taiwan, including also defeating the United States should the United States intervene. So I think when people put this together, it's easy to come with the perception that China is on the brink of war. But I I think when we look at um, whether there is a high risk of conflict in the Taiwan Straits or not, we have to take into consideration how China might be thinking about Taiwan within its larger foreign policy goals. And China has a number of foreign policy goals, including development, including becoming much more powerful, both regionally in the Indo-Pacific and globally. And depending on who you talk to, China experts may believe that China wants to be a, if not the global leader. All of these global goals could be upset by a invasion or a war with Taiwan. Because China still depends on a number of countries for its economic resources, it would create an atmosphere that would be quite detrimental to the overall goals that China could have. And when China looks at the means it currently has against Taiwan, China has a pretty, I would say, a relatively successful combination of carrots and sticks that China has used over the years against Taiwan. And it's not clear from the Chinese perspective that the Chinese policy of using a combination of incentives and coercion against Taiwan has failed. It hasn't failed, you're saying? I don't think so. You mentioned that because, I mean, when you look at the, for example, public opinion polls on Taiwan, the Mm -hmm. support for unification has just, you know, evaporated because of the coercion against Mm -hmm. Taiwan, but also because of what happened in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people say that the Chinese policy has failed, and that's why they're moving towards force. You're saying, no, no, within Beijing, they will not necessarily have concluded this isn't working. 
that, uh, you know, we don't like it, but it's not war, the gray zone coercion, the pressure, and some carrots, not many. And you think right. that, the, that the weight of opinion in Zhangdanghai in China is that, no, this is still working. We can still make this work? I think the weight of opinion is they haven't assessed that it has failed completely. Okay. Uh, so, for example, when you're looking at the overall dynamics, right, um, when you're looking at whether the military cross-strait balance, China has a significant military advantage. If you're looking at the economic dynamics, Taiwan's economy as a portion of China is significantly much lower than, say, 20 or 30 years ago. And from Beijing's perspective, it believes it had a lot of tools to impact Taiwan domestically, including inserting itself into Taiwan domestic politics, whether that is supporting opposition parties or um, sound discord among Taiwan's democracy. It's not clear from Beijing's perspective that with all the tools that China has and the fact that China is becoming more and more powerful vis-a-vis Taiwan, that moving forward, at some point, the Taiwan people recognize their future is better when they're linked to China versus if Taiwan seeks to maintain the status quo or move towards independence. So what would it take, do you think, for the weight of opinion in Zhenglanghai to, 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 to shift towards the conclusion it's not working? Would it be, I mean, obviously, de jure independence by Taiwan is a trigger. I mean, mm-hmm. that's now codified in the anti-secession law of 2005. We know that. But would, for example, a succession of DPP victories in presidential elections do that, do you think? What would shift the opinion in Beijing towards concluding that the current approach uh, of sticks and carrots, many more sticks and carrots these days, but is working and you don't need to use force? Mike, I think that's a really good question. And I'm not sure um, I necessarily have the answer to that, but I can uh, speculate some of... Yeah, you're uh, you're at a think tank now. You're not at a federally funded (laughs) research development center, so you're allowed to to speculate (laughs) freely. So I think one possibility could be exactly like you mentioned, you have successive victories of uh, DPP candidates or candidates that take more and more uh, pro-independence positions. So it's clear from Beijing that even after uh, President Tsai leaves office, that there will not be an, another party that wants to unify with China or believes in a one China policy. Um, the other possibility is that if Taiwan becomes much more uh Powerful, whether that's economically or um, politically, because it's such that Taiwan provides an alternative vision to China, of which that is attracting a lot more international attention support. So I, I could see in the first case that you outlined, or Taiwan, uh, China seeing that its policies on Taiwan's failing because it's pushing the island away. In the second case, I could see um, China believing that its policies on Taiwan fail because it's no longer. Taiwan has become more powerful and China is viewing, particularly Xi Jinping is viewing it. It's impossible, for example, to have a national rejuvenation when you have this Taiwan that is presenting a different narrative and a much stronger one to compete against China. Let me ask you to speculate on another variable to test a little bit the robustness of this consensus you, you mm-hmm. think there is in Zhongnanghai that uh, that the strategy is working. They've clearly cranked up the pressure, but they're not attacking, not using force mm-hmm. yet. And uh, you mentioned earlier that part of it is China has other goals, development, global leadership, regional uh, leadership, legitimacy at home. And of course, ineffective use of force would undermine legitimacy. So, so very high costs to uh, using force against Taiwan. As a thought exercise, if those costs were not there, if the U.S. commitment was not there to Taiwan, if we were backing mm-hmm. away, if Taiwan could be taken with force without jeopardizing uh, Beijing's global goals, do, do you think that Xi Jinping would go for it? In other words, a, yeah, yeah, how important are the international barriers to the use of force 
and the cost to China's position economically, diplomatically, regionally, and globally. If it were, for example, I'm thinking of Hong Kong, where China has gone a lot further than anyone anticipated, not anyone, but most anticipated, because it could, because it had the presence in Hong Kong, it had the tools of coercion, it had PLA on the ground, it had control of the Hong Kong police. If the barriers were about the same as Hong Kong, don't you think that China would be tempted to use force? Or do you think that it's still, you know, different enough from Hong Kong, still risky enough? I think China would be definitely more tempted to use force. But I guess the other consideration to have would be an understanding of the current Chinese military capabilities to invade the island and use force against Taiwan. And um, I think if you take out the U.S. intervention factor, that military operation becomes a lot less complex because the PLA would not have to deal with an intervening United States as well as where the United States might be operating in. But that doesn't mean that that operation would be costless. It would still be quite damaging on the PLA. It also could impose significant costs on an island. It could mean, depending on how the operation occurs, significant destruction of, of Taiwan in the process, as well as parts of coastal China which could have quite a bit of impact on how China functions internally and public opinion in China about the cost of such a conflict in Taiwan. So I think it's a little different from Hong Kong, where Hong Kong didn't exactly have an independent military or a government that was able to stand up against China the same way. So I do think if there was no prospect of U.S. intervention there would be more temptation on China's part, but I don't think it would be the same degree of which it would be as easy for China to sort of roll into Taiwan in the same way that it has been able to exert influence over Hong Kong. Yeah, that's a really important distinction. Ta- Taiwan can impose pain on the mainland in a way that Hong Kong couldn't. I mean, the democracy activists mm-hmm. tried and, and Apple Daily News mm-hmm. tried and we know what's happened. So that's a very important distinction. But, you know, Hong Kong also shows us that there is a much higher risk tolerance in Beijing, and they care mm-hmm. less what yes. the international community thinks, which has direct implications for how we think about security in Taiwan and Chinese intentions. Evan Medeiros and mm-hmm. I argued this in, uh, in a foreign affairs piece about six months ago. So then the other cost, and arguably the most important cost that China would face, of course, would be the cost of uh, conflict with the U.S., which, of course, mm-hmm. could escalate to God knows how far. And we've seen over the last years and months, a number of scholars say that uh, in war games, you know, Graham Allison always uses this in his writings, in war games, the U.S. loses most of the fights with uh, China over Taiwan. And Oriana Master recently implied the same in her foreign affairs piece. Um, I, having been in many war games, sort of wonder how some scholars claim to know what happens in all the war games. But also, you've done a lot of war gaming at RAND. How should we think about these scenarios should there be, you know, a, a U.S.-China conflict over the Taiwan uh, question? Thank you, Mike. I think that's a really important question because a lot of war games, including war games for man, are used by folks to justify their their perception that we the United States is not able to defeat China in a Taiwan conflict, or or that China will win over the United States in a in Taiwan scenarios. So, uh, my personal experience uh, working on war games is uh, there's a lot of assumptions built into the war game about uh, how capable the Chinese military is, including assuming that the Chinese military, which has not been in a uh, high end p- conflict against the peer for decades, would be able to function the way that they intend to and would be able to incorporate all the advanced capabilities that it has now um, brought into its arsenal. I think that is still very much a question mark. 
So a lot of organs portray China as much more powerful and much more man and cast it into the future. So not necessarily, they're not necessarily、um, trying to understand how China would necessarily invade Taiwan tomorrow, but in the future hypothetical scenario, how might China necessarily act? Part of this is because war games are designed to help the United States be able to plan our capabilities. So they're not designed to be easy on the United States. They're designed to challenge the United States to help us improve. So in that sense, I think it would be somewhat misleading to take the results of these war games and say either the United States won or the United States lost. And the bottom line is, in, in my experience, and there are many different kinds of games. There are political military games. There are games、mm-hmm. that test the war plan. There are games that test specific variables like missile defense or political willpower. Very few of these games are designed to be predictive. They're designed、exactly. to make you think about variables, t- stress your capabilities, and so forth. So I, I, I'm, I'm glad we had this little、um, detour because I think it's important to put that in context. However, that said, I think it's safe to assume that the U.S. war plan, whatever state it's in, is a heck of a lot harder to execute today than it was five years ago or ten years ago. So the problem is clearly harder for us. What do you think the U.S. needs to do to、uh, make sure that?、Uh, Uh, if we don't have dominance, we have at least effective deterrence vis-a-vis China in the、mm-hmm. Taiwan Strait. Right. So,、uh, so I think the United States needs to do a, a number of things. I mean, number one is make, making sure that we're investing in the right capabilities in order to counter China in the Taiwan Strait. And I would put number two after that, or maybe、uh, jointly number two and three would be helping Taiwan in investing capabilities that it needs for itself because we want a capable. Partner that we're helping, and we want to also make Taiwan、uh, responsible for its own defenses, so that when we're coming in, we can work very effectively with Taiwan in the case that we do need to intervene in a China-Taiwan contingency. And closely related to that is we need to be able to work, be working with our close allies and like-minded states to come to Taiwan's defense. So for the United States to be able to operate effectively in a China-Taiwan conflict, we, for example, need access to military bases in Japan. Ideally, we would also want Japan to contribute to such a fight. So, so I would put those three items as probably the most important. First, the United States has to invest ourselves, helping Taiwan, and then working, getting support from our key allies and partners in the region. You may have seen a few weeks ago in the Nikkei Shimbun in Japan, seventy-four percent of Japanese said that Japan should play a role. Uh, or has、right. at stake in the security of the Taiwan Strait, and the Japanese Parliamentary Defense Vice Minister gave a speech recently at Hudson, where he said Taiwan and Japan are not just friends. We're, I think he said, we're brothers. And、mm-hmm. the defense guidelines that were reviewed and revised between the U.S. and Japan about six years ago, and the new Japanese interpretation of Article Nine, allowing collective defense, all of that political, regulatory, policy, constitutional variable is is more permissive now. For Japan to do more with us. At the end of the day, I don't see Japan going anywhere near us in terms of having a Taiwan Relations Act or an explicit commitment. But the use of force, the successful use of force against Taiwan, or the absorption of Taiwan by China would be, if not existential, it certainly would hit vital interest for Japan. Sea lanes, hundred you know、uh, miles from Japan's territory,、um, the effective use of force in the first island chain. Possibly the control of TSMC and major technology hubs that are so crucial to Japan, but of course that's all true for the U.S. too. And one of the challenges we have, I think, is in the U.S. is convincing、uh, Beijing that、uh, the security of Taiwan is as important 
to us as it is to China. Or, or put differently, the Chinese narrative is that it's existential for you know, national unification is the, the highest order importance for China, whereas Taiwan is far away from the U.S. But when you think about the future of Asia, when you think about the importance of the first island chain, when you think about Japan, which arguably in the 21st century is our most important ally in the 20th century, perhaps mm-hmm. it was Britain. You think about all these things, I don't know whether you'd call it vital or existential. Well, I'd say it's vital. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we need to communicate that in our narratives. And I think the Biden administration and Congress are doing that pretty well. Right. I think that's pretty clear. Don't you? I mean, right, do you yeah. think that Beijing has any doubt now? Maybe they did a few years ago, but a doubt about the American willpower on this? I don't think so. Uh, Chinese military planning has taken into account that the United States is likely to intervene in such a scenario. And that's part of their training. It's part of their investments in military capabilities. And I would add to your point about the sort of the importance of Taiwan by pointing out that even though we do not have a clear security defense commitment to Taiwan, we are Taiwan's primary defense uh partner. And it would be widely perceived by the region that if we do not come to Taiwan's aid, that we are not as involved in the region and we are to some extent ceding our influence to China. So I think despite the fact that we don't have, you know, the treaty and whatnot, it is perceived and there will be an emotional reaction from countries in the region that the United States is not standing up to our general commitments, as well as standing up to Chinese coercion in the region if we don't come to Taiwan's defense. In addition to that Nikkei Shimbun poll I mentioned, where 74% of Japanese, you know, agreed they have an important stake in the Taiwan Strait, which is really remarkable, actually, because most of post-war Japanese history was about avoiding, <laughs> avoiding that, that mission, if you will. And now I think there's broad support for Japan playing a supporting mission. Again, not out of a defense commitment to Taiwan, but because force against the first island chain is, is pretty vital or existential in terms of Japan's national interests and therefore mm-hmm. very high on ours. My sense is the Chinese probably plan Japan in now too, in a way they mm-hmm. didn't yes. before. And maybe Australia, although Australia's geographic distance, you know, logistical role is more distant than Japan's. But I, my guess, and this is, of course, we're speaking based on entirely not classified <laughs> guesswork on our part, but my guess would be the PLA assumes Australia will play some role, maybe not in the Taiwan Strait, but in securing the southern flank. Um, right. The interesting question is, in some ways, Europe. I don't suspect that the PLA expects to fight the QE2 or the Charles de Gaulle, <laughs> but that the European peace is really important in terms of broader cost imposition on the economic and geopolitical side. What's your sense of how China reads Europe? I mean, the the usual narrative in open source Chinese literature is that there's a multipolar world and the US and European poles are different. You know, they discount the Mm -hmm. transatlantic alliance. But Biden's trip to to Europe, though not perfect, sure was interesting in that context. I mean, Taiwan got mentioned for the first Mm -hmm. time in in these these summits. What's your sense of how China's viewing this right now? So I think uh, China is quite concerned in the direction that EU, NATO, and G7 are moving. We actually just had a panel yesterday on um, how the EU and U.S. are viewing China and the China challenge. And what was what's interesting from that panel is that we're now closer to Europe in terms of thinking about China challenge than we were, say, five years ago. And China definitely is seeing this and tracking it. 
But I agree with you. I don't think China assumes that Europe would necessarily be involved militarily. Right now, a lot of the European concerns on China are more on the softer security side. But as you mentioned, there would, has been a recent statement about the need for sort of peace in the Taiwan Straits. So I think China will be closely following that to see if that is then backed up by military activities from individual European countries and what that means in terms of their own planning. And I have to say, and I think you'd agree, this is all possible, this stronger Japanese, U.S., and in a different mm-hmm. way, European support for Taiwan. It's possible because Tsai Ing-wen is steady. And though mm-hmm. she's not agreed, as China's demanded, that the so-called Singapore 1992 consensus is the basis for cross-straits dialogue, and nor should she, by the way, um, mm-hmm. in my view. So she's fallen short of Beijing's expectations in that regard. Nevertheless, she's been very steady and very disciplined. And a real contrast, frankly, to the president she worked for, uh, who I <laughs> knew and interacted with, uh, Chen Shui-bian, who was just so, uh, his a little bit like Donald Trump in the sense that he used unpredictability as a political tool, but it made the US and Japan and other countries right. very suspicious of where he was taking us in this wild ride back in 2003, four and five. And uh, Tsai Ing-wen saw that she was the MAC chairwoman, head of the Mainland Affairs Council. I interacted with her quite a bit when I was in the NSC about Taiwan's intentions with respect to the, the referendum they did at the time and so forth. But one thing I learned about Tsai Ing-wen is she's a lawyer, a trade lawyer. She's mm-hmm. incredibly smart and she can read the situation extremely well. And sh- I think she's realized and successfully demonstrated that the most important thing she can do for Taiwan in some ways, is be reliable and predictable. And that's part of why this alignment is happening internationally, I think, to her credit. I want to circle back to what you said at the beginning, though. If I understood correctly, you said that the consensus is that in Beijing, in the Central Military Commission, Zhengnanghai, whatever we call it, the Taiban, that uh, the current strategy hasn't failed. But then you, and when I said, what would tell China it failed? You mentioned success of the DPP, and sort of marginalization of the deep blue pro-unification forces, which is happening, and increasing international alignment in support of Taiwan, which is happening. So I'm afraid to ask you this, but is there a danger we'll be the victims of our own success that will be so uh, successful in dissuading China f- from using gray zone coercion that, that maybe force gets more attractive? I do think there is a danger of, um, when we look at, for example, U.S. or in- international communities' engagements and interactions with Taiwan, we do see that when we do show significant support to Taiwan, China does feel the need to respond. So, for example, when our senators visited Taiwan and we provided Taiwan with the vaccines, China responded relatively uh quickly a couple days afterwards with a massive show of military airplanes in Taiwan's airspace, right? So we do see a track record that what our actions do lead to Chinese reactions. But I think for China to be able to, or at least the Chinese leadership to see that its Taiwan strategy has failed, I think it requires that Taiwan to be um, sort of to reverse the trend that we've seen recently, which is that China's growth, it does not significantly overshadow that of Taiwan, whether that's economic growth or political power influence. And I think right now, even if, for example, we're providing more support to Taiwan, when you look at overall China's power versus Taiwan's power, it's China's power is just significantly much more relative to Taiwan's. I think it, it would be difficult for us to, for example, increase Taiwan's power to the extent that China would feel that it is very much threatened by where Taiwan is heading right now. So we're okay. 
we're okay. I think, I think we're, so. we're not in danger of, you know, France and Germany switching, switching diplomatic relations back to Taipei and somehow, no. you know, causing yeah, a conflict. So that's reassuring. And I think when Xi Jinping sees a problem, he grabs a hammer. Mm-hmm. And I don't see Xi Jinping softening his stance towards Taiwan in the next I, you know, I'd say three to five years uh, it would mm-hmm. be my would be my guesstimate. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a possibility of bending the arc of history a little bit, of convincing leaders in Beijing that coercion is not working. They won't mm-hmm. give it up. They'll never give it up. But that they're better off going towards confidence building or economic cooperation or, or winning hearts and minds. But we have a lot of work to do to convince them of that. And I think there are three key pieces we have to have. We have to have a steady Taipei. And right. Tsai Ing-wen's good, but we don't know what comes next. So that's a little bit of an mm-hmm. uncertainty. That's why Bonnie Glazer and a number of us were skeptical about getting rid of strategic ambiguity, about making a clear security commitment like we mm-hmm. do to, with Japan or Korea, because we don't we don't know what comes next after Tsai Ing-wen, mm-hmm. who's been critical to the stability that we've achieved. I think the second factor is the deterrence, and that's about U.S. modernizing capabilities, but Taiwan, too, so critical. Mm-hmm. Taiwan get the right kit and have the right defense doctrine. And then the third piece is international support to show that there would mm-hmm. be a geopolitical cost. And, you know, Beijing will not give up the course of option, but but they'll, it might be less prominent in how they approach cross-traits. I think that's our long, long-term game. So I, I think in addition to the course of element, I think there's also the whole uh, effort that China is doing in terms of disinformation and the subversive effort within uh, Taiwan domestically. So I could see, for example, you know, maybe China putting a pause on grabbing Taiwan's allies, which China has done over the years, but increasing its um, efforts to increase this information in Taiwan, becoming more involved in supporting local proxy actors in Taiwan. So I think like in addition to thinking about what we need to do to prevent China from externally coercing Taiwan, we also need to be able to help increase the resilience of Taiwan society to counter these sorts of fake news or foreign actors acting in, within Taiwan to disrupt Taiwan's elections or to disrupt Taiwan's domestic discussions on certain issues or topics. China's been very aggressive on that yes. front. Going into the election that Tsai Ing-wen won, and then after the election and trying to undermine mm-hmm. confidence in our government and democracy. Mm-hmm. But I've been very impressed with Taipei. I mean, I think the way they have handled this has been really gold standard mm-hmm. in terms of highlighting these use of bots and disinformation campaigns, countering it. I don't know. What do you think? Is it working for China or they, or, or they'll just get smarter and, and the game will continue? So I think it definitely is a back and forth in terms of Taiwan coming up with effective countermeasures in China, increasing its different tactics using different approaches. So I think, like for example, Taiwan's government's pairing up with civil society organizations to establish fact-checking centers are excellent in trying to be able to filter the information that's being circulated to Taiwan society. But I, but if you're looking at what's happening recently um, in terms of Chinese disinformation efforts related to the COVID-19 vaccine, I was reading a news article today. There's some questioning of whether China has been relatively successful in portraying Taiwan's COVID vaccines as contributing to the death of elders to have caused Taiwan's uh, vaccination efforts to hit some difficulties internally. So, so I think it's, it's, Taiwan has done a lot, but I think there's also more to do because Chinese tactics are shifting. China basically tries to use whichever methods it can to insert itself into Taiwan society. People debate this, but my sense is that Taiwan is the uh, central front and the pace setter for uh, Beijing's disinformation strategies. And you're seeing some of the same tactics show up uh, in Australia and New Zealand, although we know about it because they 
pass legislation to counter it. Less mm-hmm. well known, I think you see it in places like Mongolia and mm-hmm. the Pacific Islands. And I think Taipei has a lot to teach these other democracies about how to defend themselves. It doesn't require diplomatic relations for those lessons to be conveyed. And I think there's been some of that and hope there's more. Very much so. I definitely agree with that. So tell us, let's shift to your CSIS role. So, you know, you're obviously going to work on these issues, Mm -hmm. but also China power. What do you, what should we be looking for and what can people tune into? Yeah, thanks for asking, Mike. Uh, So in terms of my general broad research interests, I'm broadly interested in Chinese foreign policy as well as Taiwan foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific region and at large. I would group my research interests into, I guess, three large buckets. Uh, the first is, uh, of course, China power and issues related to basically building off of what Bonnie Glazer has already said, a, a very successful site and a very successful model. So where I see China power, I guess what I'm calling it a 2.0, is basically taking what Bonnie had done, the very successful analysis of Chinese power across different elements of Chinese power, and then putting it together into cross-cutting analysis. So an example of uh, cross-cutting analysis could be looking at how Chinese power has shifted after a major event or how Chinese power has changed as China's thinking about either achieving a particular goal or how China seeks to influence a particular country or nation for that respect. A second research area that I have, in addition to China power, is looking more broadly at exactly what issues that we were talking about, how China uses coercion and gray zone tactics against key allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific. So Taiwan, as we mentioned, is obviously uh, on the top of the list of Chinese targets. But, you know, Japan is also uh, a target, India, Philippines, basically all of China's neighbors in the Indo-Pacific and beyond are a target of Chinese gray zone pressure. And the third major bucket that I'm interested in is looking at how can we, as a competition with China is heating up, how can we basically install some guardrails in the U.S.-China relationship such that dynamics do not escalate in a way that is uncontrollable either from our end or from Beijing's end. So I'm very interested in, for example, establishing crisis deconfliction measures or looking in ways in which we can try to identify ways to manage escalation between the United States and China. That sounds great. And people can find it on the CSIS.org website. And will you do a podcast of your own now? Uh, yes. So I will be continuing uh, the podcast that Bonnie Clayton started, and we hope to have um, a podcast every two weeks or so. We're still trying to line up speakers for the next podcast, but hopefully it will be the, a new podcast will be available in the next two weeks or so. Excellent. And it sounds like China Power 2.0, China Power 1.0 had really compelling assessments of Chinese power as means, as instruments. Um, mm-hmm. It sounds like China 2.0 is going to look a little bit more at the efficacy of those, the ways yes. that those means are used and what it tells us about the actual, tells a bit about intentions, of course, but it tells us about the actual utility of those tools, um, which is sort mm-hmm. of the next logical step in the project. And gray zone is really important. We did a massive study, Zach Cooper, Kath Hicks, uh, John Schaus and myself, and to be candid, Zach did the heavy lifting of what gray zone coercion looked like when you looked at the major maritime cases. And this was about mm-hmm. five, six years ago. You know, I, th- I think it's still the longest sort of unclassified assessment of how China used gray zone tactics. But we're due for a refresh because right. Beijing has established itself in the South China Sea in new ways and is doing things that you were just describing in Taipei and elsewhere, what some people call sharp power that are new. But also like Taiwan, Australia, other countries are getting smarter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> about right. defending their democratic institutions. And there's more of an international uh, pushback 
even if it's still quite broad against some of China's paying a cost itself, in other words, for some of its mm-hmm. success. So we'll look forward to all that, Bunny. It's outstanding that you're with us. And I encourage people to follow your podcast and check out the research as you get started on the website and uh, look forward to working with you. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Mike. It was my pleasure to join you today. Thank you for listening to the Asia Chessboard. We will be going on a summer break and will return in August. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.